Hey guys, my name's Drew, and I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. I started this podcast because there's really nothing like this on the internet or in the podcastosphere. I'm a dermatologist. I practice in Kentucky, and I've been in practice since, well, independently since 2015. So this is my eighth year of practice. And presently, there's not a lot of plant-based dermatology discussed out there. There are definitely a few key thought leaders in the field. I, the, the guy that comes to mind right now is named Peter Leo. He's a dermatologist in Chicago, has published a good amount in the medical literature. Um, but a lot of that information is inaccessible or excuse me, inaccessible to listeners and people like yourself, the, the lay public. So I made that problem my problem, and I want to solve it by sharing with you the medical literature. I'm going to digest it for you, distill it down to its core basics so that you can have some takeaways that you can apply to your life and hopefully improve your skin health and hopefully improve your overall health. That's kind of the goal of this podcast. I want you to take your skin health seriously. I want you to take your overall general physical health seriously. Um, so if those are the kinds of things that interest you, you're in the right place. Okay, so the name of this podcast is Plant-Based Dermatology. And why is it called that? Well, for the reasons I just mentioned, and also because I used to be a full-blown vegan for about four years. In 2018, I had a kind of a crisis of health where I was in the middle of a ketogenic diet, eating high-fat foods, just not feeling well. And I did that for like, I want to say four years. And I just had this moment of clarity that diet has made me this way and diet can probably undo how I feel and that's what happened I read a book by T. Colin Campbell called Whole he is a plant-based proponent and I literally was in the middle of eating a pizza when this realization happened I, that doesn't sound exactly ketogenic but let's just say I was on a high fat diet and uh, I literally threw out the pizza went to bed Woke up the next morning and was a vegan. I had oatmeal and bananas. That's what my body was craving for some reason. And I started there. And I was a full-blown vegan for about four years. No animal product consumption at all. After about four years, so this must have been, yeah, beginning of 2022, I started feeling like I just felt more fatigued because I was a pretty active person. I, I do martial arts. I weight train. I jog. I chase my kids around. I have three-year-old toddler twins, and they keep me very busy. So anyways, I, I couldn't find the caloric match of input and output. I expended way more um, on the output side than the input side because I was eating whole foods. I couldn't find enough calories. So I kind of decided I'd have a little bit of animal-based proteins and fats 
and um, things like dairy, like yogurts and oily fish. And that seemed to kind of provide me with a good balance of inputs and outputs. So match my lifestyle. I'm still about 90 to 95% plant-based. And um, I'm really of the mindset that what you put in your body and on your body, including on top of your skin, has a significant impact on your overall health. So it's a little bit about me. Um, what else can we talk about? I did medical school at the University of Arizona, where I'm from, and I did residency there as well. I did my fellowship in uh, rheumatology, dermatology with an amazing doctor named Ruth Ann Vlagels. She's a dermatologist at Harvard. And uh, after that, um, I went to back to the University of Arizona where I was a faculty member for about two years. And then my wife and I moved to Kentucky. You'll be hearing from my wife later on in later podcasts because she's also a dermatologist, also practices with me in Kentucky. And uh, we both have a general dermatology practice. That's where I've been since uh, 2018. So that's a little bit about me. You've heard about my family. Let's briefly talk about my habits. So as mentioned, I have a black belt in karate. I didn't mention that, but I'm mentioning it now. I do martial arts. I have a black belt in karate. I weight train probably five days a week. Maybe some of you think I overtrain. <laughs> I do sauna therapy because I've discovered that it's beneficial for longevity. I also jog about three days a week. Not very far, less than two miles, but uh, I still would include that as a part of my routine. Um, and diet is a huge part of my healthy habit lifestyle. So um, I kind of explained what that meant in a few moments ago, but what that practically looks like is um, eating whole foods. So lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, um, little amounts of animal-based proteins, animal-based um, fats. But uh, I really emphasize having a lot of fiber in my diet. As a full-on vegan, I was getting probably 80 to 100 grams of fiber a day. And I do think that's a lot. It's, it's probably beneficial for you. Um, if you don't know anything about fiber, go check out T. Colin Campbell, um, Caldwell Esselstyn, Michael Greger. Those guys are huge proponents of uh, dietary intake of uh, fiber. Because fiber appears to, um, well, it doesn't appear to, it, it unequivocally affects your gut health, including your colon health. And that is a part of your microbiome. And microbiome, without question, affects your overall health. So fiber is an important part of your diet. Um, nowadays, I, would, I think that I probably get between 40 and 60 grams of fiber a day based on everything that I eat. I try to avoid um, processed foods. Certainly, I um, try to avoid seed oils. Many of you know about Paul Saladino. He's the guy that promotes uh, the carnivore diet, and he's a huge proponent, outspoken proponent, I, I should say opposition against seed oils. So um, before him, there was a, there is a guy named Andrew Weil, who's a He's also a medical doctor. 
He is an integrative health specialist, and he talks a lot about avoiding certain fats, which are pro-inflammatory and so of, of the same mindset where you should be focusing on getting ALA, which is an omega-3 found in plants, and EPA, DHA as your primary fat sources, and those are found in animal products and also algae supplements. Anyway, so um, that was a pretty long-winded address of my healthy habits, but I do want to be comprehensive. For those of you that are, this is obviously our first episode, so I'm going to talk about what we're, we will talk about in subsequent episodes and what you can expect to get from this podcast. Primarily, we're going to discuss plant and plant materials, byproducts like oils, extracts, etc., and how those affect your skin when applied topically. I will also get into oral ingestion of supplements and um, ingestion of other plant materials like for example, say avocado oil and how that can positively affect your skin health. But primarily we're going to be talking about topicals and orals and how that influences your skin health. Secondarily, we're going to talk about dermatology in general, where the state of dermatology exists in America. Health in general is another secondary topic. So obviously I'm already blabbing about my health that's something I'm obviously very passionate about. So we'll talk about health in general on this podcast. Um, thirdly, we will talk about our medical system and the many issues that I face as a practicing dermatologist, how I navigate it, um, some of the steps I've taken towards independent practice and how you'll learn. Um, I backed out for various reasons why some dermatologists are doing cash-based practices and they're opting out of insurances completely. It's, it's kind of the wild west out there and for good reason. Um, the health system is, in the United States at least, it's uh, a shell of what it should be in my opinion. We're also going to be talking about business because I'm in the process of starting a business focused on developing skincare products based on plant oils and plant-based derivatives. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about that my journey because it's an exciting one and I, I get so pumped when I talk about it or even think about it. Um, I think there's a huge market, unmet needs that people don't even know about in terms of getting the best plant products out there. And uh, we'll definitely go into that, the business component. Um, and then fourthly, we're going to talk about the world in general. We're going to talk about spiritual issues. That's an important part of my life. I'm a Christian and I'm sure in some future episodes, I'm going to be talking about my faith and how it's influenced my entire personality and where I am at my life today. Um, and other components of my life, family life. I hope that a lot of you can relate to me on those points. So again, if you like the ideas. I would hope that you would subscribe to this podcast. Um, and I hope to publish about two podcasts per week. Uh, today is June 12th, 2023. And so you will keep me accountable to that. Okay, so let's get into the meat of this uh, podcast episode. Today, I want to introduce the concept of transdermal absorption also known as percutaneous absorption. So think of the skin as the barrier between 
the outside world and your inside the inside of your body that's what it does it serves to keep everything on the outside out and everything on the inside still inside transdermal absorption is the process by which what is present on your skin goes inside your body it's being absorbed through your skin enters your bloodstream and can deposit into various tissues uh, especially like fat because fat is often the organ in which uh, anything can be deposited and remain long-term. The paper I want to discuss in this episode is a paper that was published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Academy. I'm sorry, the Journal of the American Medical Association, J-A-M-A, JAMA. And this was published in 2020. This was a randomized controlled trial, which is like the highest level of scientific evidence that's conducted by scientists in which um, they... They look at two different treatments or interventions or the presence of uh, something versus the absence of that one thing. And they compare two different groups, uh, at least two different groups. One group is w in which the treatment is present or not. And the other group is, um, I'm sorry, the treatment is present. And the other group is when the treatment is not present or the factor in question that's being validated is present versus not. So those are the two groups. They otherwise look identical. And um, that means that they're the same gender, the same age, the same uh, socioeconomic class, the same demographic. So they look exactly the same, but one group gets an intervention, the other one does not. Um, and these are by virtue of how they're conducted blinded. So the people receiving the treatment or not receiving the treatment don't know what they're receiving. And the, the investigators, the scientists conducting the study, they don't know who's getting treatment and who's not getting treatment. And that's a process by which you kind of eliminate confounders. So you, you can really distill and figure out, does the intervention actually produce a result or a response? And that's why it's considered the gold standard for conducting science in order to determine if a treatment, the treatment in question is effective or it's not. And this is the basis for how drugs get approved by the FDA. They go through these phase three randomized controlled trials. And if there is a positive outcome due to the intervention, the FDA says, okay, this looks good. The safety signal is good. There's not a lot of downside. Let's approve this. And then it goes to onto production and then it gets mass marketed. And that's why your doctor can feel confident that they're giving you the best treatment available. Um, as long as the risks are not overwhelmingly negative. So anyways, that was a lot about randomized controlled trials. This was a randomized controlled trial in which, um, sorry, I'll just note that this is JAMA 2020. It is the volume 323, pages 256 to 267. You can go on pubmed.gov and look this study up. The, prime, the first author is named Morali K. Mata, M-A-T-T-A. Um, this study looked at sunscreen absorption into the skin. So what they did was the investigators took 48 healthy participants. These are healthy subjects, people like you and me. They're just looking at parameters. This is, I believe this is a phase two style this a trial. This is not an intervention trial. This is simply um, a trial looking at um, blood absorption of sunscreens. So the participants were randomized to one of four sunscreen products. These were formulated as lotions, sprays, 
and um, the sprays had an aerosol spray and non-aerosol spray and a pump spray. So those are the kind of the differences. Each group was uh, consisting of 12 participants and sunscreen was applied to 75% of their body surface areas on um, day one, four times on day two, and four times on, four times on day three and four times on day four. And then they stopped applying the sunscreen ingredients. And by the way, there were six sunscreen ingredients, avabenzone, oxybenzone, octocrylene, homosalate, octosalate, and octinoxate. Um, those are sunscreen ingredients that are all found on the market today. So these are ones, in the, even in 2020, these were available. They're still available through 2023. So they did the sunscreen applications for four consecutive days, and then they collected blood samples over a period of 21 days from every participant. It looks like they did a total of 34 blood samples per participant, which is a lot of blood draws. So hopefully these participants got paid a lot. Um, so it looks like uh, 44 of the 48 completed the trial. So maybe the other four participants that didn't, didn't want to have their blood drawn so much, which I can understand. Interestingly, the FDA sets this cutoff point for looking at sunscreen actives and the concentration in the blood. And that threshold number was set at 0.5 nanograms per, per mLO. And this threshold, this number, which is de deemed, if it's beneath this number, it's considered safe by the FDA. If it's above it, the FDA doesn't know what exactly that means. Is it unsafe? But that's an arbitrary number set by the FDA. This number was surpassed on day one after a single application for all six sunscreen ingredients. So what does that mean? They put on sunscreen on day one, and within 24 hours, all six sunscreens could be detected in the blood. This, remember, this is a blood draw that's being conducted. So they apply the sunscreen to the skin, then they draw the blood to see if it's inside the body. Day After a single day, all six actives could be detected in the blood. And the ultimately, the highest amount of absorption was seen with oxybenzone, and it peaked at over 500 times that threshold cutoff point set by the FDA. And interestingly, remember they all got it, the sunscreen four times, sorry, four days, well actually day one they got once, and then days one, sorry, two through four, they got it every, they got it four times each day, but it was only for a four day period. The interesting thing is that the sunscreen ingredients were detectable in the blood for up to 21 days um, after, sorry, up to 17 days after the last application. So by day 21, they were still detecting sunscreen in the blood. So it's a very long half-life. Half-life means the rate at which um, a drug in question is being digested or degraded and eliminated. So uh, that means that one of these sunscreen, it was it was oxybenzone. Um, it could be detected 17 days after the application. So that means if I went on vacation on day, 
zero. Let's say I went on day on vacation June first, and I got home June eighth. I was there for a week uh, on the beach, soaking in the sun up. Not exactly because I'm a dermatologist, don't do that. But I was out there. I was putting sunscreen on every day for that whole week. That means that on June eighth was my last day of application. 14, sorry, 17 days after that. So we're talking about June 25th. You could draw my blood and you can see that sunscreen was ple- uh, still in my blood. So um, I think that, that this trial really illustrates this transdermal absorption point really well. Because it's true. This is unequivocal science that shows, and this is a rigorous study that was conducted. This was published in JAMA, a premier medical journal. This is probably the most prestigious journal outside of the New England Journal of Medicine in the whole world. This journal published a study showing that sunscreens, when applied to your skin, make it into your body at really high levels and persist for really long periods. So I think that that is something that you should all take seriously. Um, And I'm not saying that, you know, and, and in fact, the authors from this paper They clearly, in their conclusion, state that these findings don't indicate that individuals should refrain from using sunscreen. They're saying don't not use sunscreen, but they are saying this this is seen. We don't know what the effects are. And the FDA has a similar stance. They um, have a grading system for drugs that make it to market, and they grade them from... uh, category one to category three. And this is called uh, GRACE, G-R-A-S-E, that stands for generally recognized as safe and effective, G-R-A-S-E. It's an acronym. And there are only two sunscreen active ingredients that are considered GRACE category one, which means they're safe, can be used without concern. And those are zinc and titanium. Those are the physical mineral sunscreens that I recommend to my patients. The rest of the sunscreens, including those in the study, are um, category three. There are only two sunscreen actives that are considered category... I'm sorry. The rest of the sunscreens, including those in the study, are category three, which means the FDA doesn't know if these are safe because there's insufficient data. Category two is there is clearly evidence that the the drug in question is harmful. So there are two of those, and um, they're not on the market for obvious reasons because we know that they're um, deleterious to your health. But there are these GRACE 3 category sunscreens that are out there, which you can still buy and use, but we simply don't know the side effects and the consequences of using them long term. Um, There's been a lot of pushback specifically about oxybenzone because... Some studies, and this is largely preclinical, meaning they are animal studies or in vitro studies, which are like cell culture studies where they look at skin cells and other cells like tissues from your your body that they have cultured in a Petri dish. And it's not a Petri dish. It's like agar or some other medium that allows the cell to continue to live. But they, they look at studies in these settings and they think that oxybenzone has harmful effects like disrupts your thyroid function, disrupts your um, your hormone balance. Um, one study in particular has shown that oxybenzone can have estrogen-like activity and it blunts your androgen or testosterone uh, hormone family um, 
that group of hormones, it, it blunts their effect on your body. So that's kind of like promoting an estrogenic um, hormone profile. So that said, these are all done outside of humans. We don't actually know of the ill, Ill effects on actual humans. So, but anyways, not knowing that's, that's a bit daunting, I think, and a bit scary that we can still not know and, and it's out there. And, and there are some studies that show, especially preclinical pre studies that show that there may be harm. So anyways, I'm getting long-winded here. My point is that transdermal absorption is a real process. And uh, that's why I think it's just best to use something that you would be okay ingesting. So if you're okay ingesting coconut oil, you could probably safely use that on your skin because you know it's not going to have a harmful effect. And although we don't have like science that says coconut oil has no harmful effects, I mean, maybe it does. Maybe it, it's not good for your heart because it's a saturated fat. Uh, it's primarily a saturated fatty acid containing lipid and oil. Um, but I would feel safer about using that compared to a trans fat, for example. I, I don't mind consuming coconut oil. I just would not want to consume a trans fat. So I don't recommend using trans fats on your skin. Um, so anyways, uh, transdermal absorption is a real phenomenon. And I want to make it aware to you. And I want you to be careful with what you apply to your skin. So I do encourage you to use, to take good care of your skin health, use skin products that are congruent with this stance. So if that means that you avoid synthetics, by all means, um, if that means that you're okay with synthetics, by all means, you can go ahead and use that as long as you would be okay consuming that knowing that to some degree it's getting into your body. One other concept I want to talk about before we end this podcast is transdermal absorption is not equal across your whole entire skin organ. For example, absorption is much higher around your eyelid compared to your book, your back, excuse me, your back or your palm. That has to do with the thickness of the skin. So when I treat patients with um, a steroid, for example, a topical steroid, such as hydrocortisone, when they have eyelid dermatitis, I would counsel them and say there is a risk of developing cataracts and glaucoma if you use topical steroids on your eyelids for too long. And why? Because it's, it's penetrating the skin. It's making it beyond the barrier of your skin. And steroids, by virtue of their action on your body, accelerate the formation of cataracts and glaucoma. I have much less of a concern if a patient is applying a topical steroid to your, their palms for like hand eczema or dyshydrosis, which is a form of hand eczema that gives you small blisters on the palms, the sides of the fingers, the tops of your hands. Um, I have much less concern about that compared to if someone's applying something to their eyelid long term. The same would be for genital skin. So studies show that males that apply something to their genitals, well, specifically to their scrotum, absorption is like 40 times that of if they were applying the same topical preparation to their skin on their back or their buttock. So sight matters, um, duration of application matters, the 
the actual topical that you're applying matters because in general, this is not a hard and fast rule, but in general, lipid soluble materials will penetrate the skin more readily than water soluble molecules because the, the barrier of the skin primarily consists of of oils, but also of skin cells, which are proteins, which are water soluble. So there, there's a there's there's both a lipid barrier and a protein barrier, a water soluble barrier. Um, but in general, lipids do cross the the barrier of the skin more readily. Oils cross more readily than water does. Um, the state of the skin also matters. So if the skin is inflamed from a pre-existing rash like eczema absorption will be higher. Uh, an example of this is really clearly seen with a condition called Netherton syndrome, which uh, is a genetic condition in which the person suffering from this condition has a defective skin barrier. And if they apply anything to their skin, there's a very high rate of absorption into their body. For example, a drug called Pimacrolimus or Elidil or tacrolimus, also known as protopic. This is a topical calcineurin inhibitor. This drug is uh, a topical version of an immunosuppressant that is historically used as an organ transplant rejection medicine that preserves the organ. It protects against organ rejection. It allows the body to live with a transplanted organ. Well, if patients with Netherton syndrome apply too much of this topical medicine to their skin, they actually have reduced blood counts. They have true immune suppression as if they were taking the pill internally. That just demonstrates that an inflamed skin barrier and uh, a defective skin barrier allows a lot more skin penetration of a drug in question. All right, hopefully you've learned something. Hopefully I didn't bore the heck out of you. Uh, this is just the start of our discussions. And again, I'm gonna ask you to review and rate this podcast. Subscribe if you like the content. We, we kind of went into depth about what we're gonna be talking about in future episodes. And stay tuned, I think the next episode we're gonna talk about olive oil and how it can affect your skin. Or we could talk about exercise and how it affects your skin health and how it has anti-aging effects. There's so, so many things we could talk about. I'm really excited. We'll talk to you guys next time.